Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll examine a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with Trump's latest day in court, before which he made baseless claims that the Department of Justice was behind the New York fraud case against him. In court, he sat a few feet away from New York's Attorney General, Letitia James, who he has repeatedly vilified. Joining us to discuss today's hearing that will determine whether Trump and his sons will lose their real estate empire in New York built on lies and fraud is Lloyd Green, an attorney based in New York who was opposition research counsel to George H.W. Bush's 1988 campaign and served in the Justice Department from 1990 to 1992. A contributing writer at The Guardian, his latest article is As Trump's Presidential Chances Get Better, His Legal and Financial Woes Get Worse. Then we'll look into what 43 million student loan borrowers who are $1.65 trillion in debt now face following the Supreme Court striking down of debt relief since loan payments have begun after a three-and-a-half-year moratorium. Joining us is Persis Yu, Deputy Executive Director and Managing Counsel at the Student Borrower Protection Centre, who was previously a staff attorney at the National Consumer Law Centre and the director of its Student Loan Borrower Assistance Project. Then finally, as the Supreme Court's new term begins, with Tuesday's hearing in the case of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau versus the lobbying group for the predatory payday lenders, we'll speak with Christopher Peterson, Professor of Law at the University of Utah's S.J. Quinney College of Law, where he teaches contracts, commercial law, and consumer protection courses. From 2012 to 2016, he served in the Obama administration as a special advisor in the office of the director of the United States Consumer Financial Protection Bureau in the Office of Legal Policy for Personnel Readiness in the United States Department of Defense and as a senior counsel for enforcement policy and strategy in the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau's Office of Enforcement. He is the author of a number of books, including Taming the Sharks, Towards a Cure for the High-Cost Credit Market, and we will discuss how much more is at stake in this case as powerful plutocratic interests want the Supreme Court to go further in deconstructing the administrative state. And before we begin, I'd like to thank our sustaining listeners whose tax-deductible monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our foundation, publictruthmedia.org, enable us to provide a daily briefing on the major stories in the news, free from commercials, corporate underwriting, paywalls, and constant fundraising. As Trump and his MAGA followers weaponize lies in their war against truth itself, we're in a fight between crazy America and normal America. In order to overcome deliberate distraction and distortion, background briefing seeks out facts and information to awaken the silent majority in the hope of restoring a reality-based community before fascism trumps democracy and facts become completely irrelevant. And joining us now is Lloyd Green, an attorney based in New York, who was opposition research counsel to George H.W. Bush's 1988 campaign and served in the Department of Justice from 1990 to 1992. He's now a contributing writer at The Guardian, where his latest article is, As Trump's Presidential Chances Get Better, His Legal and Financial Woes Get Worse. Welcome to Background Briefing, Lloyd Green. Thank you. Glad to be back. Well, thanks for joining us, Lord. And today, of course, uh, Donald Trump was in court in New York, sitting in the front row, only feet away from Letitia James, 
the Attorney General of the State of New York, who he repeatedly vilified, and in fact he did again today, along with also attacking the judge. He also said that the Department of Justice was behind this whole New York fraud case against him for overvaluing his properties as much as $2.2 billion, etc. What's he trying to do? Is he... I mean, he's doing it with all the other cases, too, attacking the judges. And in the case of the January 6th federal trial, the judge is now basically putting on notice that you can't do this. So in the New York case, are they just ignoring these insults, both against uh, the prosecution and the attorney general, as well as the judge himself? For the moment, yes. And right now, there's no indication that anything more uh is going to happen, obviously, that can change. This is, Remember, this is a uh, case that will be tried by the judge, not a jury. And so the issue of contaminating the jury pool, prejudicing the jury pool, doesn't carry the same weight here. Um, and given the fact that this is what they call a bench trial, um, case tried by a judge, the judge, when the judge ultimately issues his ruling, uh, will need to go ahead and write in very specific uh, terms, explaining his decision, explaining his rationale. And so the judge has to also keep in mind, Trump's wrath aside, his decision will be reviewed by higher courts, most likely the appellate division, regardless of the outcome. And already the judges ruled that uh, Trump had committed fraud. In addition to that piece, he'll also quite likely have a case that might go to the New York Court of Appeals. And in addition to that, possibly the U.S. Supreme Court. So the judge is going to be mindful of what he says and mindful of what he writes. So you mean he's just going to let this roll off his back and um, judge Engorn. I mean, Trump called him today a rogue judge who should be out of office and that the case against him is a witch hunt. It's a disgrace. Um, so it's better for him just to <laughs> roll with the punches. Is that what you're saying? If he does not want to be reversed, um, the judge, I think, will develop very quickly if he doesn't have an already a thick skin. And he'll mm-hmm. also develop a serious appreciation for his own silence. Oh, I see. Well, interesting enough, and I don't know whether this is the case, but I've heard this, that the reason that this is a bench trial is that Trump's lawyer screwed up and didn't check the box that said either a jury trial or a bench trial. Is that your understanding? That's what has come out today. Uh, New York State has certain laws, rules that govern jury trials. Um, Unlike federal courts, the request for a jury trial comes at the end, right before you're ready to go to trial, as opposed to the beginning, which is the case in federal court. And the triggering event is something known as the filing of a note of issue. That says the case is now ready to be tried. That's the moment where the parties say, we want a jury trial or we don't want a jury trial. And based on what has appeared in the public domain, Trump's own lawyers checked off the box and said, nah, no jury trial. And Trump may be frustrated because he doesn't doesn't have a jury to play to. He doesn't have an audience to play to. 
This cannot be an updated version of The Apprentice. It only has the judge now, and he's not happy about it. Well, he had his lawyer, I don't know if it's the same lawyer that screwed up, attacking uh, the prosecutors today, uh, Alina Hubba, and she got so overheated that the judge had to kind of calm her down and tell her that she was basically repeating stuff that had already been shot down. That has been a problem in the sense of Trump's team making recurring arguments that have been previously rejected by the court. Um, For a non-lawyer, you could just call it someone running off at the mouth. Generally, that's not the type of thing that can trigger a sanction. When a lawyer starts repeating an argument that has been previously rejected by the court, they open themselves up to sanctions. And that's not where a lawyer wants to be. So uh, on his way out of the courtroom today, former President Trump passed by uh, Letitia James, who's in the front row, and he glared at her. And shortly thereafter, his son Eric uh, walked by Letitia James and shook her hand. So I guess there is an element of theatre here. But didn't he, uh, the judge, close down the cameras? I, I don't think the whole trial was on camera, was it? Just the, I, the antics outside? I, I, don't think, I don't think the testimony was on camera. I haven't seen any footage of it. I haven't seen any photos of it. I don't think the opening arguments were on camera either. Um, New York State is, um, New York State courts are not like courts in Georgia. Courts in Georgia are all televised. New York State, it's much more narrow than that. Mm-hmm. Um, so you're not going to get those types of photos. Trump has committed, I mean, it's kind of worth remembering. The E. Jean Carroll case, Trump is charged with manhandling her. He doesn't show up. His finances are on the line. He now shows up in court. He's indicating that he'll at least be there for a while, and he stands to be called as a witness. Um, Unlike a criminal case, it's much more difficult for him to resist uh, taking the witness stand if he's called. Um, in a criminal case, a defendant has a right against self-incrimination, that's why, and the burden of proof is on the prosecution. And that's why most criminal defendants don't take the stand in their own defense. Civil cases are different. And if Trump goes ahead and answers, I take the fifth, I plead the fifth, in effect, he's opening himself up to the creation of what they call a negative inference. In a civil case, if someone invokes their Fifth Amendment rights, it becomes, well, you can assume the worst. And that's potentially a problem for Trump. And this trial will go on for the next couple of months, or it'll be over just before Christmas. So, Well, it's important to remember the calendar here because of the nature of the trial. Judge issued a ruling last week because of the nature of the ruling last week may cut out a few weeks from the trial. Instead of ending around Christmas, you may have you could be home for Thanksgiving. But that's not the end of the trial. It's the end of the presentation of evidence. This doesn't have a jury. This has a judge. So what will happen is once the parties finish putting on evidence, you can expect a, a, a lot of dead trees, a serious flurry of paperwork then follows with post-trial briefing. Then it's a matter of the court digesting that briefing, 
So when there is an actual judgment rendered by the court, that may be a while off. Um, it's not the type of thing I, you could expect a week or two right after the trial because the paperwork is going to come. That's the, one of the effects of having a trial by judge as opposed to a trial by jury. So, Lloyd, let's talk about your article at The Guardian. As Trump's presidential chances get better, his legal and financial woes get worse. It is extraordinary how much more support Trump has gotten from his base, and he clearly controls the Republican Party and is an unassailable front runner in the uh, presidential primaries to the point where the the debates that have taken place so far are, are, are sort of irrelevant. I mean, they've just been reduced down to food fights at any rate. So what explains that mechanism? The more legal jeopardy he's in, the more his base rallies to his support. I think of it this way. You have two pieces going on that are out there. One Piece number one is that Donald Trump... Um, playing the martyr and he has been able to engage his base into identifying with his woes. If he's in trouble, he's in trouble because of them. Um, and enough Republicans buy it. That's number one. And that's been a major boost to his, uh, campaign. Second thing that's going on is you've had the debates. Trump is pulling well against Joe Biden. And if he's polling well against Joe Biden and his competitors go out there, engage in a food fight, don't say anything compelling, don't do anything that's terribly interesting, is based on the GOP as a whole says, why do we need to replace him? He's running a credible campaign against Joe Biden, and the people who are saying pick me instead are all falling flat. Well, but so the issues a, the issues don't matter, Lloyd? Is that what you're saying, that, that saying the evidence that is, that's out there is, it, is overwhelming? It, but that's, let's step back. I think the only event that might trigger any movement would be a conviction on federal charges. And right now, federal trials are not on the horizon. Right now, the first federal criminal prosecution of Donald Trump is set to go to trial on the eve of Super Tuesday, which is next March. So between, so you have all this time between early October and early March before you, that even goes to trial. That probably won't get decided until April. And by then, well, by then, most of the uh, Basically, the Republican nomination race will be over. And there is nothing that any of those candidates can do to change it. Not right now. They're not showing the types of chop, the kind of chops that they need. They're not showing the skill set that they need. And Donald Trump can just smile at the mess. But what say, for example, the federal trial over January the 6th, where they the judge has put him on notice, along with uh, Jack Smith, the prosecutor, that he's just got to stop attacking witnesses and, and the judge and the prosecution. If he is the way he is and appears to be, particularly based upon what happened today in New York, where he really 
made very, very personal attacks against both the prosecutor, the state attorney general of New York, Letitia James, and the judge. Is he likely to do that with Judge Chutkin? And then she's going to have to call his bluff and put him in jail? Trump going to jail is a, is its own complication, given the fact that he's entitled to Secret Service protection, and as, a, and as a former president, he comes with all sorts of built-in protections. The big question becomes: there are two, really. One, does he reach a point where he violates the terms of his bail or his release? That's one piece. And the second thing is: does the court impose? Does it formally impose some sort of gag order? There's going to be a hearing later this month on the gag order. Um, right now, Trump is running off at the mouth saying whatever he wants. He got into, he may have gotten himself into trouble. He was down in, uh, he was down south last week. What does he do? He goes ahead, he buys a handgun, allegedly. And his campaign says he didn't buy a handgun. He didn't consummate the purchase. Federal prosecutors are shaking their heads, but they brought this to the court's attention. And the great irony with this is if Hunter Biden is charged with, with gun law violations, and now Donald Trump may have violated federal law in connection with his maybe or maybe not gun purchase. If you're under a federal indictment, you do not buy guns. Well, it's just extraordinary. It is. We're in different universes here, Lloyd, I'm afraid. Um, there is no consensus in this country anymore about what is real and what is true. So, and this, uh, these cases are just beginning. So stay tuned, I guess. That is very solid advice. Um, <laughs> it's, unfortunately, this isn't a, a, a made-for-TV soap opera. This is America's reality in the year 2023. And it's not a great place for this country to be. Well, Lloyd Green, I thank you very much for joining us. You're very welcome. And again, I've been speaking with Lloyd Green, who's an attorney based in New York, who was opposition research counsel to George H.W. Bush's 1988 campaign and served in the Department of Justice from 1990 to 1992. He's now a contributing writer at The Guardian, where his latest article is, As Trump's Presidential Chances Get Better, His Legal and Financial Woes Get Worse. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into what 43 million student borrowers who are $1.65 trillion in debt now face following the Supreme Court striking down of debt relief since loan payments have begun after a three-and-a-half-year moratorium. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Persis Yu, who's the Deputy Executive Director and Managing Counsel at the Student Borrower Protection Center who was previously a staff attorney at the National Consumer Law Center and the director of its Student Loan Borrower Assistance Project. Welcome to Background Briefing, Persis Yu. Thank you for having me here. 
Well, thanks for joining us. And uh, student uh, uh, loan payments are resuming now after a three-year break uh, during the COVID epidemic and uh, the moratorium is over. So what's happening in terms of the student borrowers? Already, I think the interest payments for September are already being piled on. So what are they stuck with in terms of after this uh, three-year moratorium? Yeah, that's a great question. So as you mentioned, student loan payments have been turned off for the last three and a half years for the vast majority of student loan borrowers. Um, Interest did start accruing back in September 1st, but um, as of yesterday, October 1st, um, payments are now coming due for these borrowers. I think there's a roughly estimated about $200 per month um, for borrowers, and we know that Frankly, a lot of borrowers can't afford these payments, and we know that the servicers who are expected to take these payments are overwhelmed um, and understaffed. So there are 43 million Americans who owe a total of $1.65 trillion in federal student loans, and the average borrower has a debt balance of up to $40,000, including debt from private sources, according to the Education Data Initiative. So this is a massive social problem, isn't it, for America? You've got an indentured generation. Um, that's exactly right. Um, student, the student debt market is the second largest credit market in the United States. It is second only to mortgages right now. And so roughly one in five um, Americans have student loan debt. So what happens to these student loan borrowers has tremendous ripple effects, not just for these borrowers and their families, but for the, their communities and the economy at large. So how did we get into this situation? Here in California, the University of California colleges and universities were free up until uh, Ronald Reagan. And he started to charge tuition fees because he, th- he actually said if the students have to pay for their education, they're not going to be demonstrating. And, of course, that was during the uh, anti-Vietnam War days, etc. So where's the history of this? Is, does it start with Ronald Reagan? I mean... As I say, you know, here in California, some of the best universities in the country were free up until Reagan. Yeah, I mean, so there is definitely a very long history and, and a confluence of factors that have kind of gotten us to the moment that we're in right now. Um, the Higher Education Act, which passed in the 60s, was originally part of the package of civil rights legislation and meant to expand access to higher education to low-income students and students of color. What has happened over the last several decades is that, um, you know, both by putting more emphasis on the debt um, as a tool for access to education and less on grants and state subsidies, we've seen the the shift in balance where borrowers or students rather are having to take on more debt. The cost of tuition is rising increasingly almost exponentially over time. And so it's this combination of increasing tuition, increasing debt, but also when it comes to the student loan payments, we see that historically servicers have also not helped student loan borrowers navigate the programs. And so even where we have programs that should have eliminated borrowers' debts or helped them have affordable payments, borrowers haven't been able to access them. So we have increasing debt and a decrease in ability for borrowers to access the tools necessary to get that debt resolved. 
then along comes the pandemic. And of course, everything becomes even worse and is and is magnified um, so that we're now in the crisis that we're in, where all of this debt is suddenly becoming due and borrowers are scrambling to try to make payments. And unfortunately, the servicing system hasn't improved since before the pandemic. And so many borrowers are finding that there's no place for them to turn to get help. Well, President Biden did try. He offered to wipe away $400 billion in student uh, loan debt, but the Supreme Court struck that down in July. Yeah, I mean, so I think we, we really are at a very difficult moment because the entire premise behind President Biden's program was that returning to repayment was going to cause extreme financial distress to millions of student loan borrowers. And that's why we needed um, the debt cancellation that he proposed. Unfortunately, we don't have the debt cancellation program, which would have wiped out almost half of the student loan portfolio's student loan debt. Um, but instead, we have all of those borrowers entering repayment this month, and we're going to start seeing the um, financial catastrophe that the Department of Education predicted would happen when they first proposed to um, cancel up to ten or $20,000 of student loan debt for millions of borrowers. So what was the Supreme Court's logic in striking down the $400 billion in student debt loan relief? Um, well, so the Supreme Court relied um, on, on two, two, in two different legal um, provisions. One, it said that the secretary didn't have the authority to, to waive um, all of this debt under the HEROES Act. And this was the emergency authority um, that the president had used um, based upon the pandemic, which um, would have allowed, which, well, I'm sorry, the, the statute, the HEROES Act, allows the secretary to waive or modify any provisions of the Higher Education Act in, in order to address um, a national emergency to protect borrowers and, you know, and other folks from financial catastrophe from the, natural emer from the national emergency. Um, the Supreme Court said that this was beyond the scope of what that statute allowed at the time. Um, they also invoked the major questions doctrine, which, as many folks have uh, talked about, is has been used largely to say that this is just a really big political question. Um, and so the court was exercising its authority to say that this was beyond the bounds of what the Department of Education could do. Um, many of us, of course, disagree with that decision um, and think that it is a perfectly legitimate authority to use um, in order to provide this cancellation. But um, nonetheless, the Supreme Court has spoken and, and we don't have that debt relief program right now. But there was some criticism of uh, the Biden administration in terms of the HEROES Act and, and the way that he tried to get this $400 billion in relief. Can he, with a stroke of a pen, cancel student debt? I mean, the, the fact that the federal government is in the business of shaking down students and curtailing their future and saddling them with a lifetime of debt doesn't seem right to me. Yeah, I mean, the student debt crisis has caused a lot of problems for a lot of borrowers. And I think, like, in many ways, the broken student loan system has made this problem of student debt even worse for borrowers. What we see is a lot of borrowers, in fact, even owe more than they originally borrowed decades after they went to school. And so in many ways, um, the system is just not working. And it is, frankly is not what borrowers signed up for when they took on this debt to get an education. But I think to the original question, 
there is a lot of different authority under the Higher Education Act. The HEROES Act was, in my view, a perfectly legitimate way of going about the relief that President Biden was trying to achieve with his $10,000, $20,000 debt relief program. Um, however, there are other tools that the administration has. Um, we, see, we see them um, going about a process called negotiated rulemaking to exercise their authority to use these tools to come up with a new way, um, in particular using the Settlement and Compromise Statute under the Higher Education Act. Well, it's, uh, the White House has now offered up what they call the SAVE plan, S-A-V-E, which stands for Saving on a Valuable Education. And so that plan allows borrowers to make lower payments based on the percentage of their discretionary income. So just walk us through what that will do. Yeah, so the SAVE plan is the newest version of an income-driven payment plan, which is a plan that bases the borrower's payment upon a percentage of the borrower's income. Um, and the way that it's calculated is by, you know, subtracting out whatever we consider to be kind of the essentials. And um, one of the things that the administration did was they increased the amount that we're counting as essentials. And so um, oh, it's been increased from 150% of the federal poverty up to 225% of the federal poverty for the borrower's family size. Um, so that will result in substantial savings for a number of student loan borrowers. Um, what they have also done is they have said that if your payment does not meet, does not completely pay off the interest that is accrued, the administration is not going to charge that extra interest above and beyond what the payment was. So borrowers, unlike previous income during payment plans, um, borrowers will not see their balances grow and grow and grow if they are going to take advantage of this program. Um, this was a huge disincentive to folks enrolling beforehand and created a, pretty much a debt trap for folks who wanted to have affordable payments. So this is a pretty big benefit for folks. Um, there are some additional benefits that are going to take place in July. They're not implemented yet. Um, in addition to increasing the amount of protected income, um, the administration is going to lower um, some borrowers' payments, um, but that will again happen starting in July. So the percentage that they're going to take is going to decrease starting in July. Um, so there's a number of other, you know, technical details that have changed, but I think the, the big picture is that borrowers are going to, are likely to see lower payments um, because of this increase in the discretionary and in the, the, because of this increase in the amount of protected income. Um, and eventually they'll see a lower amount because of they will be taking a smaller percentage of the borrower's um, income for that payment. So what about borrowers who have been defrauded by these for-profit colleges, which are uh, disgusting predatory operations yeah. that literally are funded by you and me and every taxpayer, which I find absolutely obscene? Yeah, absolutely. This is this is a huge problem that has been ongoing for, I mean, probably since the beginning of the Higher Education Act um, and, you know, the federal loan program where schools have taken advantage of students' desire to get an education and, frankly, taken advantage of a lot of first-generation students and folks from low-income communities who may not have the same knowledge about about our higher education system and defrauded them, basically lining the pockets of these executives um, with uh, these, these borrowers' student loan payments, um, and then leaving the borrowers on the hook. And, and that has been a pervasive problem for a number 
of decades. Um, and we are the administration has taken a number of steps to for for many of these borrowers, and we've seen you know a number of announcements that will result in relief for a lot of borrowers. But one of the things that one of the things that I'm very worried about is that there are borrowers who we know should not owe these should not owe this loan balance because we know that the school has defrauded them. However, there are still backlogs of folks who are in the pipeline to have their loans canceled, who are getting bills right now, and who you know may be very confused about what they should do because um, they're getting a bill, but they also think that their loan should be canceled. Um, of course, there's more to be done. We know that you know the department has not identified all of the programs, or they have not made you know formal announcements about all of the programs where borrowers haven't been um, you know were defrauded, but um, that is something that borrowers should continue to look out for. So what can students do now that they're faced with having to resume payments? And as you mentioned, the interest payments already started in on September the 1st. And, you know, I, I wish I could remember exactly the figures, but I was just looking online earlier today. A woman, by the way, the, the people who owe a lot of this money are no longer students. <laughs> Some of them in middle age, That's they've right. been paying off forever. I think she started out with like a ten or $20,000 student loan and is now 300,000 in debt. That's not uncommon, right? I, I mean, it, it, it's shockingly, it happens shockingly more often than one would expect. Um, we hear horror stories after horror stories of folks who decades after beginning repayment um, owe, you know, several times more than the amount that they took out. And this is, this really does exemplify how broken the student loan system is and how desperate not just borrowers, but the whole system is in need for relief. One thing that I think would be really helpful for folks to know about the student loan system is that the typical black borrower, 20 years after signing repayment, still owes over 90% of their original balance. And so we are really stuck in a hopeless situation where folks are, are unlikely to get out of debt anytime soon under the existing programs, which is why the cancellation programs are so critical and why President Biden's effort to create a new debt relief plan is so incredibly critical right at this moment. But what borrowers need to know right now in terms of the bills that they're getting in the mail is that they they need to know that they need to be vigilant. The road to return to repayment is going to be bumpy. Um, We know that a lot of borrowers are getting bills that have the wrong payment amount on it. Um, We know that borrowers are trying to call their servicers and Call wait times are sometimes, you know, hours long if you can get through to a customer service representative at all. Um, There are programs that can help borrowers right now. The SAVE program is an important program for folks to try to get a more affordable payment amount. Um, The other benefit of it is, of course, that your balance will not grow because unpaid interest will not be charged. Um, Additionally, If borrowers aren't able to make payments, there will be um, all of the kind of like negative consequences like credit reporting, the reporting of a delinquency, wage garnishment, those sorts of things are on pause for the next year. So the administration is calling this their on-ramp program, where they were kind of suspending some of the bad consequences of not making payments um, in order to help facilitate borrowers kind of transition back into repayment. But borrowers do need to know that interest will be charged during this time. Um, And so the last thing I'll I'll say in terms of what borrowers need to know is if they are having trouble 
um, accessing the programs and the help that they need, they should file complaints with the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau and the state attorney and their state attorney general, because um, those agencies are tracking what's going on and need to be aware so that they can take actions to help other borrowers in similar circumstances. Right, and the Supreme Court is likely to shut down the Consumer Financial Protection Agency or Bureau. There's a case before it, which we're also discussing on today's program. So just in closing then, Persis, the students can get information at studentaid.gov, right? Is that a helpful site to go to? Yeah, studentaid.gov is the central resource where borrowers can learn information about their their particular student loans. They can log in to find out their balance um, and to see in general, to to use tools in order to um, estimate how much they should be paying each month. Um, So that is an important tool for folks to use. Um, We also have on our website, our our website, cancelmystudentdebt.org, is a resource that folks can go to to try to get more information about how they can access the different relief programs. Cancelmystudentdebt.org, is that it? Yes, that's right. Well, Persis Yu, I thank you very much for joining us here today. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. And again, I've been speaking with Persis Yu, who's the Deputy Executive Director and Managing Counsel at the Student Borrower Protection Centre, who was previously a staff attorney at the National Consumer Law Centre and the Director of its Student Loan Borrower Assistance Project. We're going to take a brief station break. We'll be back looking into the Supreme Court's new term that begins with Tuesday's hearing in the case of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau versus the lobbying group for the predatory payday lenders. When money you're needing and mouths you are feeding, I'm Johnny Banker, Johnny Banker am I. I'll plaster your home with a furniture loan, swinging out a Jolly Banker, Jolly Banker am I. If you show me you need it, I'll let you Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Christopher Peterson, who's a professor of law at the University of Utah's S.J. Quinney College of Law, where he teaches contracts, commercial law, and consumer protection courses. From 2012 to 2016, he served in the Obama administration as a special advisor in the office of the director of the United States Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, in the Office of Legal Policy for Personnel and Readiness, in the United States Department of Defense, and as a senior counsel for enforcement policy and strategy in the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau's Office of Enforcement. He's the author of a number of books, including Taming the Sharks, Towards a Cure for the High-Cost Credit Market. Welcome to Background Briefing, Christopher Peterson. I'm happy to be here. Thanks so much for the invitation. Well, thanks for joining us, uh, Chris. And uh, speaking of sharks, <laughs> on on Sunday at a rally in Iowa, uh, President Trump said if he was in an electric boat, an electric-powered boat that was sinking and there was a shark uh, 10 feet away, he would uh, decided that he'd be better off electrocuting himself than facing the shark. And, of course, he's mentioned on many occasions how much he's against uh, electric vehicles and windmills, etc. So that's the latest uh, thoughts on sharks from the former president. But there are 
really sharks out there. Almost every mini mall, there's a payday lender's office. And my understanding is that payday lenders charge as much as 400% interest, which would make the mafia blush at that kind of vigorish. So how do we get in a situation where you have that kind of predatory behavior going on that is just crippling people who need short-term borrowing and end up indentured uh, with mountains of interest that they can't pay? Well, yeah, that's right. Um, you know, in, in the United States, states tend to state, states have the right to try to regulate interest rates within their own jurisdiction, and some states have pretty um, strict and aggressive usury limits, or, or also known as interest rate caps. Uh, and other states don't have any cap at all, and in some instances, there are a lot of loopholes. It's actually a quite complicated area of the law. And the CFPB, the federal agency created after the financial crisis, waded into that trying to create some new federal standards that would require uh, lenders that make these high-cost loans, if it's permissible under your state to make them, then at least they should have to determine whether or not the borrower has the ability to repay those loans and to limit some of the more um, abusive, nasty practices that are associated with, with that, these loans. For example, submitting uh, sometimes these payday lenders will submit borrowers' checks or automated uh, clearinghouse items over and over and over again, racking up all sorts of insufficient funds fees. So that was the genesis of what this this case we're going to talk about was all was all about. And the case is before the Supreme Court in its new term tomorrow, is it not? Yeah, they're going to have oral argument in the U.S. Supreme Court tomorrow in a case called CFSA versus Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. And this is a trade association of payday loan companies, like you mentioned, from the state of Texas, who have sued federal agencies created to try to make sure our mortgage loans and credit cards and also payday loans, if they're permissible, uh, to try to make them more fair and transparent for everyone. The payday lenders are alleging that the way the uh, the agency is funded is unconstitutional under the United States Constitution, and uh, if if they win this case, then it could um, uh, undermine all of the funding for not only this agency but potentially, depending on what the U.S. Supreme Court says, it may affect the way that other agencies are funded as well. So it's a very far-reaching and and I think some people would say radical case uh, that that a lot of people that that are following this uh, following litigation around the country are, are, are going to be very interested in how it turns out. Well, there are 13 states, including some red states like Arkansas and Georgia, that have restricted uh, payday lending and made it illegal, right? And, and there's yes, some states yeah, have it on right. the ballot initiatives to crack down on the industry. So people are aware of the nature of this predatory business, are they not? Yeah, I think so. Um, a supermajority of the public and both Republican and Democratic Party voters support having traditional interest rate caps, old fashioned usury limits. And also the United States Department of Defense or the Pentagon supports interest rate caps on loans to military service members because so many of the soldiers and sailors around the country were uh, getting their security clearances revoked because they ran into trouble with these super high cost predatory loans, payday loans, et cetera. So yeah, most people around the country want to have some rules and regulations that 
cut down on the, the very worst practices in this industry. And uh, whether or not the federal government, uh, federal government's consumer protection agency is going to be able to do that is part of what's up, up before the United States Supreme Court tomorrow. But how can they argue that having an agency that protects the American people and the taxpayer unconstitutional? What's the basis of that? Yeah, so in the Constitution, there's a clause called the Appropriations Clause. And this clause says that no money shall be drawn from the Treasury, but in consequence of appropriations made by law. So for, for... you know, ever since the founding of the Republic, the courts have interpreted that to mean that you can't pay money out of the Treasury unless Congress passes a law that says that you can. But in modern, more modern days, we, we have bills that are called the Appropriations Bill, where a lot of the spending gets allocated. And I think that the, the case attempts to conflate the way the word appropriations is used in the U.S. Supreme Court with the way that it's sometimes used in some bills before Congress. The way the CFPB is funded, like a lot of federal agencies, it gets its funding uh, from uh, gathering money out of the industry that it regulates. So the CFPB is set up as a bureau within the Federal Reserve Board of Governors. And the Federal Reserve, the Central Bank of the United States, uh, is um, draws its funding from treasuries and other securities and fees that it charges uh, to banks that use its systems. So, for example, if a bank wants to make a wire transfer to another bank, they have to pay a fee to that for that, and they pay it to the Federal Reserve Board of Governors. Well, the way that the CFPB is funded is the CFPB gets to harvest a certain percentage of funding out of that Federal Reserve system, much in the same way that the central bank does. And if there's any money left over at the end of the year, then the money gets shed back on and, and the Federal Reserve actually operates at a profit. So the the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals um, down in the southern United States, it's headquartered in New Orleans, has said that that system for funding the CFPB is unconstitutional and that all of the work that the agency has done was unconstitutional because the employees that receive their salary and the the building and the printers and the photocopiers and all of the work that was funded out of those funds uh, were from an unconstitutional source. And therefore, all the law enforcement investigations and the regulations that the agency has passed have to be struck down. Boy, that seems like a solution looking for a problem, isn't it? I mean... Well, I certainly think so. And it it has potentially broad-reaching implications because there are lots and lots of federal agencies and programs that are not funded by annual appropriations from Congress, but are just set up with an organic original law that Congress passed. So the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation that guarantees the solvency of our banks, uh, it's funded by uh, assessments on banks that pay for it as opposed to taxpayer funds. The post office, of course, is a federal... Uh, a government-sponsored agency, and it's funded by charging for stamps. Uh, but nobody has ever said that these agencies are unconstitutional. Well, excuse me, no courts have said that these agencies are unconstitutional before. And depending on how far the U.S. Supreme Court wants to go, it could really shake the foundations of many of these independent agencies, including, by the way, your social the Social Security funding that people get. That's also not funded through annual appropriations from Congress. It's set up in what's called the Social Security lockbox. 
Is that also potentially a question? I, uh, five years ago, I would have said, no, absolutely not. That's a radical and absurd interpretation of the U.S. Constitution. But we've seen the U.S. Supreme Court really taking a very aggressive approach to unwinding precedent that most people in the country thought was settled a long time ago, the Roe versus Wade abortion decision being an obvious example. So then this could be a case uh, where the Supreme Court goes further in deconstructing the administrative state, which, of course, is a, is a, a war cry of uh, Stephen Bannon's. So that if that's what's at stake, that would explain why Leonard Leo, who's uh, this prolific fundraiser of dark money, who's helped get this conservative majority on the Supreme Court and get a lot of the Federalist uh, judges in the U.S. judiciary on the federal bench, he's working with uh, various dark money groups, including Americans for Prosperity, which is the Koch brothers. So what interest would the Koch brothers have in this, or the Koch brother now, singular, I have in this, but for the idea that this will go a long way if they take up the, if they go along with the Fifth Circuit in deconstructing the administrative state. That is the real objective then. This Consumer Financial Protection Bureau is merely a means by which they can achieve this end. Well, I think that there's a, a, a very that's a very plausible reading of the facts. Uh, it, it's certainly that it's certainly the case that the case right now before the U.S. Supreme Court is only focused on the CFPB. But the thing that's problematic about it is that there's not a whole lot that makes the CFPB's funding mechanism all that different from the way that a lot of other independent agencies are also funded. And so, depending on how far the U.S. Supreme Court wants to take this, it could just stop at uh, uh, defunding the nation's consumer protection agency that focuses on making sure our mortgage loans and credit cards and other other financial products, bank accounts, savings accounts, the, make sure that those are fair. But but if they if they broadly uh, interpret this attack on that agency's funding, it could expand to a whole host of other agencies. And that that really does shake the foundations of the administrative state by forcing each and every um, uh, uh, year for them to go back hat in hand and try to get their funding from Congress, as opposed to what other what other ever what, what other mechanism the agencies are currently you know getting that funding. On the other hand, if you're a bank and and you're funding administrative agencies out of your bottom line, and you don't want to deal with consumer protection rules much in the first instance, this could be seen as a very positive development for your bottom line. Long term, though, I wonder whether or not it is another step towards destabilizing our system of government and and the the balance in our economy. Well, Leonard Leo is also giving money to... RAGA, the Republican Attorney General's Association, and he's given money in support of CFSAA, the people that are suing the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Raul Labrador of Idaho has gotten money from them, Brenna Bird of Iowa, Mike Higgins of Nebraska, and Daniel Cameron of Kentucky. And in turn, these major donors to the Republican Attorney General's Association since 2012 when the suit was brought against the CFPB, they also include money from the Chamber of Commerce Institute for Legal Reform, Bank of America, Capital One, J.P. Morgan Chase, Wells Fargo, Visa, MasterCard, the Student Loan Service Navient, and the for-profit University uh, of Phoenix, Tide Max, and Consumer Choice Financial, 
which serves unbanked and underbanked consumers and etc. So what's the interest then of RAGA in this and why are these big banks, the well-known like Bank of America, Capital One, JP Morgan Chase, Wells Fargo, etc. My understanding is that they secretly f- have some of these payday lending venues, they have investments in them. Is, is that the motive? And what's the connections here? Well, with respect to the Republican Attorney General's Association, I mean, I think the connections are fairly clear. Uh, you know, for somebody that's running for the Attorney General in any given state, the voters of the state are generally not going to be supportive of payday loans or other, you know, financial tricks or traps. Those are very unpopular. But oftentimes voters don't vote on on those kinds of issues as a single issue. And so for an attorney general, one of the tricks in, 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 in running is to try to, um, you know, in a popular, populist way, appeal to ordinary working people. But in a subtle behind the doors way, remember that the campaign gets funded by financial institutions and other businesses that may be um, have problematic practices that could potentially be threatened by the attorney general's office. And so we shouldn't be too surprised that there are um, that companies that want to deregulate and want to protect themselves from potential law enforcement investigations or other restrictions on unpopular business models, particularly excited to make campaign finance contributions to the attorneys general uh, around the country. And with respect to the second part of your question, I I should say to you first, though, that, look, it's particularly galling to me with with respect to these predatory loans. The public opposes them. But it's 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 deeply disappointing to see attorneys who are purporting to be lawyers on behalf of the public taking special interest in money to adopt positions that are overwhelmingly unpopular in front of the United States Supreme Court. But but. To, with respect to the second part of your connection, uh, your question, what are the connections to some of the the large, uh, you know, Wall Street money center banks? Well, you know, they how how involved they are in in, in high cost payday lending. That depends on the bank. It depends on the payday lenders. But but they do all have an interest in trying to keep the regulator that um, uh, controls their behavior under under their thumb. And I don't think that it's ever been the case that the Consumer Protection Agency that's focused on making financial transactions fair, more transparent, and more effective for working people is popular with the largest financial institutions in the world. I think they'd be happy in in many respects if the agency just goes away. Said, though, in this particular case, there are some friend of the court and amicus briefs that do express some concern about the potential for some real chaos in the mortgage and housing markets in particular if the Supreme Court is reckless in the way that it it strikes down the CFPB's work. Because after the financial crisis, a lot of the rules of the road that the CFPB adopted and regulations that set out how we're going to make mortgage loans in this country, they're dependent on the CFPB's rules. If those rules are struck down without a clear path about how we're going to, we're going to resolve the underlying ambiguity, a lot of the, the companies that make loans to people to buy houses are going to be uncertain about how they're supposed to comply with the law. So um, it's a complicated story. Uh, and, and I think that, that the bottom line is that what we're looking at is a major potential shift in, in how the U.S. Supreme Court approaches 
funding for federal regulatory agencies that get their funding outside of the normal appropriation cycle from Congress. And that's probably Leonard Leo's interest, right? Unless he's he's that cynical that he's really a big supporter of predatory loans like the payday lenders. He's he's more interested in deconstructing the regulatory state right? on behalf of some of his plutocratic backers. Well, you know, it's hard for me to know. I mean, I, I don't want to speak for him. I do think mm-hmm. that that is one of the potential implications of the case if it goes the way that that some fear it will. But that being said, it's not a foregone conclusion that that's what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. I honestly don't know how the Supreme Court is going to rule because I think it's pot, I think I think the the three Democratic appointed uh, justices are likely a safe vote to overturn the Fifth Circuit's decision. But they need two more votes. The most plausible votes are probably Justice Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Kavanaugh. And I think that there's at least some chance that the CFPB is going to cobble together the votes to hold on to its funding source. And look, I'm, I'll be crossing my fingers tomorrow to hear questions that point in that direction from those two justices in particular. Well, Christopher Peterson, I thank you very much for joining us here today. I appreciate it. Hey, it's a pleasure to be with you, and thanks for your excellent journalism. And again, I've been speaking with Christopher Peterson, who's a professor of law at the University of Utah's S.J. Quinney's College of Law, where he teaches contracts, commercial law, and consumer protection courses. From 2012 to 2016, he served in the Obama administration as a special advisor in the office of the director of the United States Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, in the Office of Legal Policy for Personnel and Readiness, in the United States Department of Defense, and as a senior counsel for enforcement policy and strategy in the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau's Office of Enforcement. He's the author of a number of books, including Taming the Sharks, Towards a Cure for the High-Cost Credit Market. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon and assistant producer Evan Green to help us sustain this program into the future and ensure it remains free to all. Please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you've missed any of today's programs or would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we include extended interviews searchable by topic and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcast, and we encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305.